Welcome to the Platform Podcast, where we talk to coaches, athletes, experts, and real people to learn about their approaches to training, nutrition, mindset, and much more. I'm your host, Jordan Kundi wright founder and head coach of the Twin Cities Kettlebell Club, and I'm on a mission to help others build sustainable, healthy lifestyles. Now, before we jump into this episode, I want to take a second to make an important announcement about the Twin Cities Kettlebell Open. The event will still be taking place in person in Little Canada, Minnesota on October 23rd. Uh, But as you know, Delta is causing all sorts of new travel restrictions for a lot of us. And so we've decided that we will also include video submissions for participants who are unable or unwilling to make the trip in person. You'll be able to submit your videos until midnight central time on October 22nd, and you'll still be eligible for all of the same prizes as our in-person competitors. Just go to our website, TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com for details and to register there. This week, I'm going to be talking about data because I'm a nerd and I love data. Um, but I, I had a nice conversation with uh, Sean McAnally on the Twin Cities Kettlebell Club Facebook group um, and or on my Facebook page, uh, you know, talking about how wearables are not particularly reliable and some of the errors that that can come up and that your body tightly regulates and subconsciously regulates the output and um sean sean made a a really good point and um i also countered some of those points um with with how we deal with some of those challenges um because he he's not wrong um but there are still a lot of things that we can do and there's a lot of ways that that we use data and leverage data in in a fashion that helps inform our decision but is not dependent on that data being the most valid source of data um so i hope you enjoy this episode i i do get a little bit into the weeds on on uh data science and analytics a, a little bit but i hopefully not too nerdy um, for you guys, um, but uh, anybody who's a consistent listener at this point knows that I'm I'm kind of a nerd at heart. So um, all of my latent nerdery has been activated at this point. So hopefully you enjoy it and you find it educational. Um, if you do, please do me a favor and like, share, leave us a five star review. Um, you know, tag me in an Instagram story, tell a friend, um, whatever any way that you can give me support i would i would greatly appreciate it because i'm you know really doing this as a passion project and i want to grow my reach and i I really want to help as many people as i can um but the best way that you could support me is uh to go register for the twin cities kettlebell open and come spend some time with me and my friends lifting bells on the platform here uh on october 23rd or do the video submission as i just mentioned i just really would love to have a a great turnout for this event and uh i hope that you can make it and of course if you want to step on the platform and compete in kettlebell sport or you need help just with your nutrition um, you can reach out to me. I help athletes of all levels reach their goals without wasting time using my integrated coaching approach, which I dive into a little bit more detail in this episode. So uh, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club, or email me any questions that you have at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club at gmail.com. So now, without further ado, let's step onto the platform and talk about the importance of data. 
All right. Welcome into this week's episode of the Platform Podcast. I hope you guys had a wonderful and relaxing Labor Day weekend. Um, I wish that I could say that I had a relaxing and wonderful Labor Day weekend, but uh, I, I honestly, I did not. <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a shit show. Um, my my wife and I headed up to her parents' place, which is about three hours north of us uh, in the Central Lakes region here in Minnesota, which is beautiful. And her parents have a wonderful retirement home um, on a lake that we go to quite often during the summer, especially. And, you know, Labor Day is kind of the the semi-official end to summer. And we were hoping to get up there for a nice uh, three-day weekend and, and spend, spend some time up there with her family and with the kids and, um, maybe get a little bit of time on the lake, maybe do some water skiing, you know, spend, spend a couple, couple days, uh, soaking up the last bits of summer because this is the the time that we live for. Although I do have to say, I'm a fall guy. I love fall. It's football season, uh, all that good stuff, but I digress. Um, we, we drove, we got, we got in the car, uh, drove three hours up there and on the drive up there, our son kept telling us that he, his tummy hurt and uh, he was feeling sick and sometimes he gets car sick. So we didn't really think too much of it and we managed it. And then uh, we got, we got there and he didn't want to eat lunch, which is totally not like him and was just kind of laying about. And so my wife being a nurse uh, decided let's take his temperature, see what's going on. And he's got a fever of 101 degrees. 102 degrees some somewhere in that range and so we're like ah shit so to make a long story short we drove three and a half hours back uh almost immediately after getting there we we had lunch and uh then he got sick and we drove back so we spent six and a half hours in the car um, on Saturday just to be back on uh Saturday evening put our sick child to bed and uh, take care of our daughter and and then be home all weekend um but fortunately he's covid negative uh strep negative and just caught some random virus and and should be okay but uh anyways uh, that's my sob story about how my labor day weekend was uh not as resting and relaxing as i had really hoped it would be um uh, but you know, say Levy, you guys don't come here to hear me complain about uh, my my kid getting sick. So I will move on. Um, the the topic I really wanted to talk to you guys about today is actually the importance of data and how data can be leveraged um, in order to help us manage our biological response. And um, I have to give a shout out to to my buddy, uh, Sean McAnally. Uh, he really uh, prompted this this thought process uh, for me today because we had a nice dialogue in the uh, in the Twin City Kettlebell Club group on Facebook uh, talking about um, I made a post about why I don't why I don't own a John Deere, um, because, uh, you know, the day after we got back from our, our trip to the day we got back from our trip to the lake that was turned around and brought back, uh, my wife and I used the the long weekend as an opportunity to get stuff around, get stuff done around the house. And um, so, so 
you know, one of the, one of the chores that has to get knocked out every week during the summer, especially is uh, you got to mow the grass. Right. And, and, you know, we, we don't own a a massive amount of land, but it's a big enough backyard that uh, it takes me a solid 35 to 45 minutes to mow our lawn, depending on how quickly I'm, um, I'm pacing my, my push mowing. And we, we have a push mower, you know, just a, a traditional gas powered push mower. Um, and my, my boy Rowan is like, dad, you should get a John Deere. <laughs> Cause a, he loves tractors. Um, you know, like, like most, uh, like most boys do, especially, uh, those that grow up around my wife's family who are a full on John Deere family, you know, come from a farming background and, uh, you know, he's, he's ridden on some antique John Deere's and parades and stuff. So he loves John Deere's and he's like, dad, you, you should get a John Deere. Like Opa has, uh, you'll, you'll be able to be done a lot faster. He was like, Why don't you get a John Deere? And I said, because I like the exercise, son. I, I, I use the, I use the mowing the lawn to, to get some extra exercise. So, you know, it ends up being about 35 to 45 minutes and it gets me about 9,000 to 10,000 steps. Um, you know, just in those 45 minutes because it's effortful and I'm pushing up and down a hill that we have, you know, we have a slight slope in our backyard. So, um, you know, it, it, it definitely takes a little bit of work. I'm, I'm always, uh, solidly sweating by the time I'm done. You know, I typically burn about a thousand calories pushing them over, um, for, for that period of time. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a good amount of work, um, but I enjoy it. And it's, it's a good way for me to get non-exercise activity thermogenesis, you know, which is NEAT is the acronym for that. And I, I think NEAT is really important um, because it's one of the things that is predictive of sustaining uh, weight loss. It's, it's actually a lot, it's, it's strongly correlated to maintaining weight loss. Um, it, it can also be super, super helpful as a way to, uh, to actually, uh, achieve weight loss because it helps you actually minimize stress and still get movement in and help you burn more calories, um, without the cortisol response and without the, uh, the effects that, that high intensity training can have. Um, and also your non-exercise activity is going to be significantly more calories than your exercise activity. Because if you think about your exercise activity, like if, if you're super dedicated and carve time into your schedule every week, um, then you are going to spend six to 12 hours a week training that's still a very small percentage of, of your, of your waking hours, right? Assuming you get uh, an eight, eight hours of sleep, you know, that's, that's going to be one to two hours a day of training. And that that's, again, that's if you're training a, a pretty, pretty decent amount, right? So one to two hours a day, that that still leaves let's see 24 minus 10 equals 14 minus let's take the upper that's two so 14 minus two leaves 12 hours of the day that is yeah i I did have to talk that out because i don't have a spreadsheet in front of me (laughs) um, just to get that math right so it leaves 12 hours a day um for you that you need to do non-exercise activity so the amount of calories that you burn in non-exercise activity is going to be significantly more than what you burn 
uh, in exercise because just, just by virtue of the volume. Right. Um, so, you know, you can think of non-exercise activity as walking to your car, going up the stairs, cleaning your house, um, you know, going to the bathroom, cooking your food, uh, you know, anything that is daily activity that is not intentional exercise basically falls into the neat category. So neat your, your expenditure for NEAT is super, super important um, because it, it's strongly, strongly correlated to your success in maintaining weight loss. And it can be a, a big key to actually achieving weight loss. So it's, it's one of the levers of transformation that we, that we use, um, you know, when I'm working with my clients on, on how we can help them be successful longitudinally in, in their lifestyle changes to, to achieve their goals. Uh, neat is a big part of that. And the metric that we use most readily to track that is steps. Hence my post on Facebook and, and on Instagram, you know, at twin cities, Kettlebell club. If you're not following me, please do. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a very important thing. And Sean, um, um, rightfully called out, um, that you have to watch out for, for compensatory increases in appetite and or a downregulation in other activity, which is totally accurate. Um, you know, and he pointed out, he, he recommended the, a book Burn that, that he read, which, which I haven't read yet, um, but I'm going to based on his recommendation, um, you know, because the, the basic thesis of the book from, from what he told me is that, uh, is that the body tightly regulates energy expenditure um, and will downregulate and upregulate, you know, it will upregulate your appetite. So when you, when you burn significantly more calories than you usually do, your body will upregulate your appetite so that you, so that you are hungry and you eat more, um, or it will downregulate your energy expenditure. Um, so you'll, so you'll just naturally, and you can think about after, after a hard workout, you know, like if I, if I come in and crush a biathlon session and I put 90 minutes balls to the wall and I might, I might burn 1500 calories in that 90 minutes. If I'm, if I'm pushing really, really hard, um, you know, after that session is finished, all I want to do is sit on my ass. I want to eat. I want to take a bath. I want to sit on the couch. Um, I want to go to bed. Right. Um, and then the next day after that, um, or that day, depending on when I do that biathlon session, I'm a lot less likely to, to get steps in because your body, uh, subconsciously downregulates your activity level, it, your drive for activity for non-exercise activity goes down when exercise activity goes up. And it also upregulates appetite because your body is trying to create homeostasis. It doesn't like big swings, right? Big swings are what your body is trying to avoid because the whole point of most of our adaptive mechanisms is to um, survive and thrive and procreate. So big swings in energy output, if, if they happen consistently, um, will, will cause problems, right? We won't thrive. <laughs> And, uh, it likely, it likely means that we're, you know, fighting, you know, and from an evolutionary standpoint, it means we're fighting day in and day out or running away from, you know, predators day in and day out. Your body doesn't like that. Um, so it's going to upregulate your appetite until you, you need more food. If you're going to keep up this level of activity, um, or once, once the, the, you know, adrenaline and cortisol, um, the adrenaline and cortisol go down, your body's going to say, okay, all quiet on the Western front. Now it's time to nap. 
now it's time to rest and digest and let's let's decrease our energy output because we can't keep up this rate of of energy expenditure or we're not going to survive we're certainly not going to have uh energy left over to to procreate and we definitely want to do that because sex is great right so he, he's very, you know, Sean is very rightly pointing out um, that your body, your body does have these adaptive mechanisms to try and prevent you from overexpending um, and also from under eating. So that that's why when you're highly active, you are more hungry. That's why when you're highly active and the next day, you're much less you have much less drive and desire to be highly active again. You're not, you're, you're, and there's even, then there's even the, the subconscious movements like, uh, like uh, fidgeting. I don't know about you, but I'm a fidgeter. Um, I have a, you know, I, I tend to be moving my hands a lot. I tend to be tapping my foot a lot. I tend to be shifting in my seat. I tend to stand. I walk when I, when I am on the phone, I, t- I tend to walk around and talk. Um, I tend to, you know, do those. I talk with my hands a lot as I'm doing right now. Um, You know, I'm waving my hands at a microphone that that y'all can't see, Um, you know, but it's, it's how I I do non-exercise activity, right? But the day after or, or following a large level of output, I tend not to do those things as much, even if I don't realize it, right? My non-exercise activity decreases. Your, your brain is really smart in toggling to control those mechanisms, right? Um, so the point that we got into and the, the topic on the, the, the topic on this, on this podcast is, uh, the importance of data because my, my response to, to Sean, um, was, was essentially, that's why I love data so much because, um, I can't, I can't manage how my body subconsciously, uh, adjusts for those metabolic adaptations, right? The, the increase in appetite, the decrease, uh, in, in drive for non-exercise activity. Um, but I have data to understand, um, what, what I'm doing. I, I can, I can make the subconscious activities more visible by using data and, we can manipulate those mechanisms um, through integrating our nutrition, I- integrating our nutrition and training periodization, as well as um, tracking things. This is why I'm so big into tracking. It's why I love tracking so much. Um, and I've I've always liked tracking things. I've always liked data, um, you know. And it's why I'm I work in uh, a, a data field now. You know, for for the past you know four years, I've I've done uh, data science, AI, machine learning, um, project and program management and, and strategic consulting. Um, so I work with, you know, brilliant data scientists and, you know, I'm not a data scientist myself, but I could play one on TV at this point because I do understand the concepts, uh, you know, fairly well. I don't have the math, uh, training necessary or the, or the coding training necessary to, to produce the high level models that, uh, my, my, um, coworkers do, but, um, I do understand their work and I do read the research and I do consume a lot of these things. So I, I have this deep, uh, this deep appreciation and, and passion for data. Um, and I really like that it makes what otherwise would be invisible, visible, you know? Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I really appreciated this conversation with Sean because he, he, he actually said, well, you know, the, the, the wearable tech uh, is not reliable, and and you know that that data is really just a peek under the hood. But but most of the stuff that's going on is actually 
uh, subconscious and it's, you know, we're, we're not in the driver's seat. Like we think we are. So we're, we're actually in the back row of the church van and the, and the brain is the one driving, right? Which I loved that. I loved that analogy. Uh, so it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great counterpoint. You know, I, and I don't, we weren't uh, fighting, but I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the discussion, you know? Um, but, but my point to him and the, the reason and the, the, the part that I wanted to, to dig into a little bit more is that the reliability is more important than, than validity. And if you're not familiar with, with what those technical definitions are, um, reliability is the consistency of the metric. And so, for, for example, if you step on a scale and it says you weigh 188 pounds, and you step off and step back on and it says 188 pounds again, it's reliable. Now, if it hasn't been zeroed out, it may not in fact be accurate, right? It may not be valid. It may not be measuring what you think it's measuring, right? Um, but it's reliable. It's giving you the same, it's giving you the same number over and over again. Validity is the how accurately is the metric that you're um, that you're using measuring what you want it to measure. Right. Um, so it may not be, it may not be a valid metric. Um, but so long as it's reliable, it can still be useful. Right. So Sean's point about wearables being, um, not valid in their, in their assessment is, is pretty well supported by, uh, by research. Now they're getting better, um, but there are, to his point, there are so many internal mechanisms that are impossible to measure through a wearable that, you know, there's a, a, a metabolic energet, energeticist, uh, which is an actual field of science that I, that I listened to on a podcast, um, I think on the Barband podcast, actually, with David Thomas Tao, um, who, who talked about how it's, it's essentially impossible to actually understand what your true caloric intake is because we can't know with any reliability based on the based on the current metrics available to us um, how much our body actually absorbs of the nutrients we take in and calories in calories out is well and good but we can't actually know the, the calories in component is not just what goes in your mouth, but what your body actually absorbs, which is why somebody who has a parasite may take in 5,000 calories a day. But if they're only absorbing 500 of those calories because they have a parasite, their actual calories in is 500, right? It's not 5,000. <laughs> it's not just that it goes in your mouth. It's what your body absorbs. And we can't know that um, with, any, with any validity, right? Um, but what we can measure with reliability um, is the calories in to our mouth, right? We can't, we can't with any validity or reliability know the calories absorbed, but we can know what we're, what we're inputting. And this is why, um, basically every formula or macro calculator or anything that, that you can find on the interwebs, um, is predicated on the assumption of all things being normal, right? And what are the things that need to be normal? Well, uh, it, it needs to, that means that you're not under an excessive amount of stress. You have normal and healthy hormone function. Um, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like in norm, under normal circumstances, all things being normal, this is the calculation. Well, and within that, then all things being normal, you're then given a confidence interval, right? Uh, a plus or minus of how accurate any particular model is, right? Or any particular tool is. And that might be, you know, plus or minus 10%, you know, say on your step calculator, right? They, they might say that with, you know, with normal, normal wear and assuming normal usage, that it will be accurate within plus or minus 10% of, of your steps, right? Hey guys, Jordan here. I wanted to take a second to make an exciting announcement about the prizes and sponsors at the Twin Cities Kettlebell Open October 23rd here in Little Cannon, Minnesota or via video submission online. First, we will be giving away a cash prize to the first, second, and third place best overall coefficient lifters in the meet. Next, we will be raffling off prizes from Bellevator Belts, who has donated two belts for us to raffle off. Barefoot Athletic Shoes has given us six pairs of Ursus Barefoot training shoes, as well as two plate-loadable maces from Cambrian Customs to give away. Additionally, we will have swag from Gaspari Nutrition, and you can still go on to the 27 Degrees Apparel website and order a customizable event t-shirt and last but not least pro kettlebell from seattle kettlebell club will be bringing their made in the usa kettlebells to test drive on the platform head to head against the kettlebell kings that i have in my garage and nikolai assures me that he will go head to head against any kettlebell any day anywhere in the world on any platform and that you will love these bells cannot wait to put hands on them and i cannot wait to lift with you in person or see you put your best foot forward on the platform via video submission now without further ado let's get back into this episode and so 10 percent is actually a fairly large variance right that you know if you're talking about 10,000 steps uh, that that means that it, you might have actually taken 11,000 steps or actually taken 9,000 steps right plus or minus 10% in, in, in either direction so plus or minus 1,000 steps um but what my point back to Sean was is that so long as we use the same methodology consistently and longitudinally we can get informative trends and make appropriate decisions because that variance becomes part of the longitudinal calculation, right? It, it smooths the, the trend line smooth over time. So the longer the timeline, the more you're, the, the less, the less the variance day to day will matter because it will represent a smaller portion of the data set. Right. And, and because that variance is present in every single data point, it's, it actually becomes a consistent variable of the model, right? If we're thinking about it in terms of a, of, a, of a data model, right? So because we're not changing the methodology over and over again, we're using the same methodology over and over again. Um, and so long as that method is reliable in that it doesn't change um, what it tells us, 
right? Then it, it's it's going to smooth over time, right? And and it's not going to matter if it the aura ring told me I took ten thousand steps and I actually took nine thousand, or it told me I took ten thousand steps and I, I actually took eleven on any particular day, because over time the trend of the averages are what I'm looking at. I'm looking at on average, am I hitting my goal of 8,000 steps a day or 10,000 steps a day, whatever, whatever your step goal is, right? So that matters more than the validity of that particular metric because it's consistent over time. Now, if you make it inconsistent over time because you know, one day you're using your aura ring to calculate your steps, um, but then another day because you forgot to take your aura ring off the charger, like I have done before, and I had my phone in my pocket, and my phone also calculates my steps. And what do you know? My phone tells me a different number of steps than my aura ring. Some days my aura ring tells me more steps than my phone, and other days it's vice versa, right? That's the, the variance that he's talking about with wearables, right? Um, and I have just decided that for my tracking spreadsheet, I use my aura ring because it's way more likely that I have my ring on than that I have my phone in my pocket. Although I almost always have my phone on me. I'm pretty good about that. Um, I don't always have my phone on me and sometimes I need to leave it on the charger, right? But I charge my aura ring when I'm sitting at my desk doing work and not taking any steps and it doesn't take that long to charge. So Again, not a sponsor, by the way. Just want you to know, not affiliated. I just love my Aura Ring um, because it gives me data. Thank you. Um, it's also not my boss, though. Um, but I do, I do appreciate the data that I get from it. Right? It does give me data that I find very valuable. One of the things being steps. Right? <clears throat> and again, the, the accuracy of it doesn't matter as much to me as the consistency um, because it is the same method over and over and over again, I can use it for longitudinal trending. And that's, that is still informative um, of what I need to do, right? A change of changes that I need to make. And this also applies to tracking macros, um, tracking your, your calories burned in a, in a workout, right? And I'm, I, I'm very, I'm, I very much coach people when it comes to using your heart rate monitor, your heart rate monitor for the heart rate zones that you're in during a workout is very informative and very accurate, very valid and reliable. So, uh, you know, assuming it's charged and the, the sensors are wet, it's usually pretty good. The accuracy on the, on the heart rate monitors is pretty good for, for tracking, for tracking what heart rate you're in. What it's not very good at is estimating the calorie burn or people don't understand how it estimates the calorie burn because typically um, to estimate your calorie burn, it's going to ask you at the start when you set up your, your heart rate monitor, your age, weight, gender, right? And so it's, it's going to estimate your BMR, which is your basal metabolic rate, which is based on those factors, right? And then it's going to use your heart rate for your training to take that BMR plus your elevated heart rate to come up with a calorie calculation for what you did during your workout. So it might tell me that I burned 1500 calories in my 90 minute session for biathlon, like I mentioned earlier, but what it, what most people don't account for is that that 1500 calories, a, a big portion of that is my BMR. What, what I would have burned were I just sitting behind the desk recording this podcast episode, right? When I'm, when I'm sitting behind a desk recording a podcast episode, I still may have burned 
a thousand calories in that same 90 minutes. And only 500 of those calories come from increased activity level. And where people get that, where people mess up is they're like, oh man, I burned 1500 calories in my workout. Fuck yeah, I can crush a pizza now. <laughs> they reward themselves for uh, they reward themselves for their exercise calories or, or like my fitness pal. One of the things I don't like is that my fitness pal allows you to do a caloric adjustment to your intake based on your heart rate readout, your, your estimated calorie burn from a workout, right? Well, if your calorie need was calculated based off of your BMR and then the exercise output was also calculated based on your BMR plus the extra calories from your workout, you're double counting the BMR there. So people get a much larger uh, calculation in calorie adjustment than they should from exercise if they, if they, if they choose the option of calculate or, or of adding calories to their daily intake based on their exercise output. So don't do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't have my clients uh, use their, use their calories from their workout to as a, as a, this is how many extra calories you should get. Right. Um, we will, we will toggle more calories on heavy training days, but it's, it's not predicated on, on what their output was. Um, not, not predicated on the output calculated by their heart rate monitor or wearable device. I should, I should clarify, right. Because those, those output metrics are not reliable and not valid. Right. So we don't, we don't necessarily use those um, or they're not valid, but they are reliable. So we, we do look at those trends, but more importantly, we look at, we look at the consistency with which people are training, the intensity with which they're training, their volume that they're training, because that is an objective metric. Volume is, is, is a relatively easy to calculate metric, right? Training volume. Um, RPE, rate of perceived exertion is subjective, right? And so this is where we get into what, what is qualitative versus quantitative data, right? So quantitative data is objectively measurable. And those are the things that we, that we track that are like our steps, our calorie input, right? Hours of sleep that we, that we slept, our resting heart rate, right? Things like that. So those are our quantitative metrics, right? But also equally important, if not more important, are our qualitative metrics. And these a lot of times are subjective. Um, so sleep quality, right? And you know, we alluded to it in the, in the podcast, in the podcast with, uh, with Audrey and, and Bobby talking through the water cut and what some of their, uh, experience was in, in that cut. We talked about biofeedback, right? Biofeedback is something that we include in our tracker that is largely qualitative, right? Um, so it's the, the, the areas that we focus on are stress, hunger, recovery, energy, digestion, sleep quality, right? So that's the shreds metrics from uh, Sam Miller, uh, you know, shout out to Sam. And then also mood, cravings, training output or training quality and uh, menstrual cycle for females and sex drive for both. Um, so, or for anyone, right? So that's a whole bunch of qualitative metrics that we track, right? And so I have my clients 
rate their stress from one, all of these things, I have them rate from one to 10, right? Stress, hunger, recovery, energy, digestion, sleep, quality, mood, cravings, training, menstrual cycle, sex drive, right? You can rate those every week. And we have them actually, you can do it every day from one to 10, right? Based on, based on how you're feeling. Well, over the course of 365 days, um, that, that starts to get you a trend analysis. And we look at the weekly average, right? We look at our weekly averages. We don't, I don't over index on any, on any one day or any two days, but we do look at trends week to week, uh, month to month, and then, you know, six months, 12 months, right? We, the more data we have, the more we can start doing longitudinal trend analysis. And these things are very important because the qualitative components of how stressed are you start tying to the things that Sean was pointing out, right? Like that your body, um, the, the effect of stress means that your body will burn fewer or more calories depending on how stressed you are, right? Your insulin sensitivity is strongly correlated to your cortisol production, which is based on your stress, right? So I don't expect people to do a three-point cortisol test, you know, a saliva spit test to get their cortisol levels every day, you know, day in and day out, week in and week out, right? That would be silly. People aren't going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to afford that. But what we can do is do qualitative metrics of how stressed were you on this day? Scale of one to 10, 10 being easy breezy, one being easy breezy, 10 being get the fuck away from me, right? How hungry were you? Like one being very little hunger, 10 being I could eat a shoe, right? Like if you, if you track those things longitudinally, you start getting you start getting a picture and you can also see week to week. If I see that stress was elevated all week and I see that hunger was diminished, but cravings were up, right? That starts, that starts giving me indicators that there are metabolic adaptations happening, right? If I know I've had somebody in a caloric deficit for, you know, a couple of, a couple of months and their hunger cues are now very low, but their cravings are very high, that means that their body has down-regulated ghrelin, their hunger cue hormone, but you still have cravings for high caloric palatable foods because your body knows that you need calories, right? So you may not, you may not feel hungry regularly, but suddenly you get cravings, right? Or hunger goes down and energy level goes down and sex drive goes down right? That means we're seeing hormonal downregulation of those things because your body is in fight or flight mode. It's like, okay, we're not getting enough calories. We need to downregulate hunger. We also don't want to be fucking right now because we can't support creating another life right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to downregulate your sex hormones as well. So you're not going to have energy to do much because we need to save energy for whenever the next fight comes or when we need to run away and also too tired to hump right now, right? We don't want to bring a child in during famine, right? Again, longitudinal, think from an evolutionary standpoint, right? So these are the things that we can start getting some visibility into without needing labs, you know, by having data that we track, both quantitative and qualitative data, right? Because I know based on quantitative data, what you're actually doing from an input standpoint, how many calories you're actually consuming. Again, assuming that you're measuring, weighing, and being fairly consistent with your methodology, 
right? Um, assuming that we're being consistent with our methodology and then tracking the qualitative data as well. The nice thing is, is if you're diligent enough about tracking your qualitative data, the need for quantitative data diminishes, especially for people that have invested the, the time to learn about how to accurately track about how about what about what calories are in what types of foods and what macros are in what foods right so the the big picture is that the more features we have in the model the more data that we can input into our model of quantitative and qualitative data the more reliable the model becomes and the more valid the model becomes right because across more data points right you can interpret better, you can predict better, you can understand trends better. But again, it's consistency over time, data points over time, and then being able to interpret those data points, right? And that's where that's where coaching comes in handy um, because being able to interpret these things is a lot of work for one. Um, and, and, and for two, it's also nice to have uh, another person's perspective on it because we all have our own biases about our behaviors and about our uh, about our about our own inputs right and that's that's why I have Liz that I lean on and just you know just had a great call with her uh, you know on Monday where you know the last the last two weeks for me have felt like a shit show just because the stress levels have been off the charts there's been a lot of inconsistency there's been you know, I had travel for work, my son getting sick, the holiday, you know, uh, my anniversary was a, a couple of weeks ago, my, my wife's birthday was a couple of weeks ago, you know, a lot, of, a lot of things that made it feel super inconsistent. And yet when I actually um, turned in all of my data, she was like, oh, you've, you've, you've had, you've had good weeks. You've, you've been really good. Your, your calories look really good. Your biofeedback looks good. Right. Um, you know, et cetera. Didn't feel that way to me subjectively. Um, but she was able to look at the big picture and look at my, my qualitative data and my quantitative data and say, no, you're, you're closer. You've had better weeks than you think, you know, or maybe than it feels right. Um, and that's the other part that I love about data is it, is it, it's much more objective um, th than just your feelings. Right. Um, and even, even qualitative data. Yes, there is subjectivity in qualitative data, certainly, but that subjectivity um, aggregated minimizes the, the, the subjectivity of it actually. Um, you know, the, the aggregate of it smooths out some of that subjectivity as well. Right. But we, we don't, we don't look at the, the, the qualitative data alone. We look at it in combination with quantitative data. Right. So that's, that's what, what I really wanted to, to touch on today. And I, I probably, you know, I say touch on as though I didn't just uh, rant about it for uh, 45 minutes, but um, I love data for this reason, right? Um, and, and hopefully, hopefully the, the passion comes through, and, and you guys can understand uh, where I'm coming from. And I, I try not to, I try not to nerd out too hard uh, on the analytics, um, and and not go not go too much into it. Uh, but it, it's it, it is very very valuable, right? Um, and working with a coach is super valuable. It helps you be able to to have a methodology to follow, to learn how to consistently and reliably um, give yourself inputs, right? And, and to have inputs that are reliable, even if they're not the most valid ways to measure things, the most valid ways to measure a lot of these things are lab work, 
and they're expensive and you can't, you can't, uh, well, most of us, uh, can't afford to, to consistently pay for the most valid ways to track these numbers, right? Because they're onerous, but there are reliable ways that are valid enough, uh, to make them useful over time, especially. And with the support of people who have training and, uh, you know, have education around how to interpret these data points and to come up with, um, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, models um, that, that, that take into account these different features um, to, to give you a predictable output and to, to understand what variables need to be manipulated in your approach, whether it's your training intensity, whether it's your recovery protocols, whether it's your stress management, whether it's your macro prescriptions, um, you know, there's a lot of levers that we can pull on. Um, and, and which ones we pull on when is super important. And then there's the whole psychological component of customizing it to your psychology, customizing it to the season of life that you're in, um, adapting the seasons of life adapting your training and your nutrition to fit your seasons of life, making sure that your seasons of training fit your seasons of nutrition. Because if you're trying to do a calorie cut, a calorie deficit, while you're also trying to add new muscle tissue, those two are antithetical to one another. So your training better fucking line up with your nutrition, right? And all of those things need to line up with your psychology. And they also need to line up with the things that are going on in your life in order for you to actually stick to the plan. So there's a lot to consider. It's why coaching is valuable. It's why, uh, it's why I'm so passionate about what I do and, and, about, and about the approach that I have. Um, because I try, and look at, I try and look at everything holistically now. Um, and, that, and that approach has really evolved for me over, over you know, 10 plus years. Um, I used to be just really focused on the training component. And then I started learning about nutrition and I started, then I really focused on nutrition a lot. And now I, you know, and then I, I always focused a little bit on psychology because it's in my background, you know, and now, you know, recently then I, I really started looking at data a lot. And now I understand it's got to be about all of those things. It has to be about the data, the psychology, the nutrition, the training, stress management, all of those things, recovery, it, it all has to come holistically because we don't operate, um, you know, those things don't operate independent of one another. They're codependent. They're facets. They're facets to a beautiful diamond um, that is you. So anyways, thank you very much for listening to my explanation and rant about uh, data. And um, I hope you found it valuable. And if you did, please, you know, like, share, pass on to a friend, um, if you need help, reach out to me. Um, I am happy to help. Um, you can always ask questions. You can send me messages. You don't, you don't have to hire me as a coach. Um, you know, I, I would love if you did, obviously, but there are, uh, I'm always happy to answer questions. And, you know, I'm also happy to point you in the direction of other coaches because there are a lot of coaches out there who are very good at this. Um, and I am not the best at everything. Um, I, I will straight up tell you if, if when we talk, uh, I do not have the answer uh, that you are seeking or that I am not the best person for you. I will tell you that because, um, I want to make sure that people will get with the right, get with the right people. So, um, thanks for listening. I hope you had a great labor day and I hope you enjoy this episode and 
I will be back at you uh, next week with a, another episode. And this one will be an interview. Um, somebody that I'm very much looking forward to speaking to. And she's kind of a big deal. That's all I'll say. Until next time, keep at it and make the last one your best one. See y'all. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. I'm Jordan Gundy Wright. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. Please don't forget to register for the Twin Cities Kettlebell Open on our website, TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com. And if you have a question or a suggestion, please email me at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Twin Cities Kettlebell Club. And if you want to step onto the platform and compete in kettlebell sport, please reach out to me. Until next time.